Father, we thank you for this. Um, Lord, we thank you for the ears and the mouth of your word. Um, and for all that is given out today already. So we come now. We fill him with wisdom and energy and insight. And we open our hearts and minds to receive all you have for us this evening. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Liz. Um, thanks, everyone, for having me along. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Angus. I've been here for about five years now, um, which I thought was a really long time until I said that at the 8.30 this morning and sort of got a few blank faces back and <laughs> introduced myself afterwards. I was like, how long have you been going here, Colin? It's like 50 years. I was like, all right, it's not, it's not a competition, but whatever. Um, so yeah, I also want to offer an apology in advance. As Liz said, I've just been on the 9 to 10-year-olds for the last week, so... If you feel like you're being spoken to like nine and ten-year-olds, then I apologise. Um, so this August, over the next four Sundays, we are going to be looking at the book of Acts, which I'm really excited about. It's probably my favourite book in the Bible, and I'll tell you why. The book of Acts tells the story of how the church was founded. It tells the story of how the gospel spread from what was viewed as this small sect contained within Jerusalem to impact the heart of the greatest empire the world has ever had, that of Rome. And it also tells of how congregations of Christians began to meet together just like we are tonight. And it all gives us this incredible model for evangelism today. So the early church is astonishing. I think it's something that we can easily lose sight of. If we want to grow our churches, if we want people to turn to Christ, we should look no further than the model that Acts presents. There's a famous story about a time when Billy Graham visited the Soviet Union a number of years ago. It was during the heights of the Cold War when Soviet Union and US relations were especially tense. Upon arriving back in the US, he was accused by a number of churches of setting the clock back 50 years for the church. And Billy, obviously hugely disappointed by the accusation, answered, I've been trying to set it back for 2,000 years. <laughs> In other words, the model we should be following should be aligned to that we find in Acts. So after the teachings of Jesus throughout the Gospels, the apostles are now left to it. feels to me a bit like when you graduate from school or university and your teacher or your headmaster or chancellor, whoever it might be, might exhort you to go and put into practice all you spent the last however many years training to do. Only this time, the apostles have the greatest message ever spoken to proclaim. No pressure. So at the end of Matthew came that great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And the book of Acts is the apostles' attempt to do exactly this. And to put the book of Acts into context, the book was written amidst fierce opposition. In first century AD Rome, the Roman Empire worshipped many gods. Paganism was common. Judaism, particularly in Jerusalem, was widely practiced, and there was also the backdrop of Hellenistic or Greek society where philosophy was widely taught and debated. Add to this that the Roman emperor was revered as some sort of divine demigod. So you can imagine what it would have been like if some new religion burst onto the scene. We've already seen before the book of Acts, John the Baptist put to death by Herod. We've seen Jesus himself crucified on the cross like a common criminal. And in this book, in Acts, we also read of Stephen being stoned to death 
all 12 apostles being arrested and the subsequent fleeing and scattering of the apostles to every single part of the Roman Empire. So how is it then that in spite of all the suffering they were afflicted with, the church continued to grow? That's what amazes me about the early church. John beheaded, Jesus crucified, Stephen stoned, yet the church continued to grow and grow and grow. There's a great verse in Acts 5, verse 14, which says, Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Nevertheless, the key word there, meaning despite the threat of suffering and persecution, from just 120 believers in Acts 1 to over 3,000 in Acts 2 to thousands and thousands more by the end of the book. And in Acts 5, we read of a previous new religion when a Pharisee named Gamaliel stands up in the Sanhedrin right after crowds have called for Peter to be put to death. And he states, Some time ago, Thudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. Gamaliel calls for Peter and the disciples to be left alone. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. The crowds here expected Christianity to just be another upstart religion like that led by Judas. I think it's hard for us here in London to imagine this. Uh, We had a talk here a few months ago on suffering for our faith here at St. Dee's, but I think it's important to reiterate this point. I recently went to a talk given by Open Doors, a charity which supports persecuted Christians around the world. Each year they produce a world watch list where they rank the 50 countries where Christians face the most extreme persecution. The top five this year, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya and Pakistan, would give you some sort of idea as to what it was like as a Christian in the first century AD in the Roman Empire. So if you've got got your Bibles, we're now going to dive in. Um, And as we look through this passage, let's keep in mind, what was it about the early church that under the looming threat of persecution and death caused the church to grow and grow and grow? So Acts 3 in your Bibles, um, which is on page 1033. So the first couple of chapters of Acts, we've seen Jesus' ascension into heaven, We've seen the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We've seen Peter's first sermon and just prior to this chapter, the fellowship of the believers. So we're going to split this chapter up into two. So we're going to read the first ten verses to begin with. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. 
Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit, begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So when I was first asked to preach on these verses, I was actually quite terrified after reading them. It's an enormous challenge, isn't it, that we're presented with here. But it's one that if we as a church engage with, the resultant effects would be transformative. So Peter and John, they're on their way to pray in the temple. When just before entering the temple gate called Beautiful, they're greeted by the moaning, groaning voice of a cripple laid out on a stretcher begging for money. This is something I imagine each one of us in this room probably encounters on a daily basis as we exit the tube station on our way to work, as we walk down the high street, wherever it may be. But what is our response? Do we just keep our eyes fixed straight ahead? Do we acknowledge them? Do we drop them a few coppers? What is our response? I read an article recently about a man who asked a number of homeless people, what is the happiest part of your day? Which seems a strange question, but the response that stuck with me while reading the article and really struck him was, when somebody else makes me feel human. When somebody else makes me feel human. It sounds so simple, but how often do we just walk straight by? And this is what Peter and John do. They stop in their tracks, they crouch down, they say to the cripple, look at us. And what was his reaction? The cripple gave them his attention. For the first time in who knows how long, he is noticed, he's made to feel human, and he's treated with dignity. And that's our first challenge. When we see people in need, and I don't just mean those on the streets, but those who we know are going through a hard time, do we just offer a cursory glance or a sideways look? Or do we crouch down in the dirt alongside them and say, look at me. I will journey alongside you in whatever it is you are going through. When we restore dignity, when we remove any sense of self-pity, when we treat people humanly, people's potential can also be unleashed. In 2012, my parents moved to South Africa, where we lived for four years. Uh, My parents are both teachers, and they went to run a school out there. There were many remarkable stories I could tell of our time there, but I want to tell you briefly about one student, a girl called Malibu. Malibu grew up without a mother. She was disowned by her father. She grew up in a community where violence and drugs were rife. She was consistently rejected pushed down to the bottom of the pile and made to feel unwanted and unloved. Today, she is about to graduate from the University of Buckingham with a degree in psychology. Last month, she spoke in the House of Commons about the value of education. So how is it that that happened? All it took was just one person to get down in the dirt alongside her, restore her dignity, remove her self-pity, and say, you have potential. 
She won a scholarship to the school where my parents were running, and she's so impressed there that she ended up winning the scholarship to Buckingham here in the, in the UK. And she often stays with us when she's here, and her story just blows me away every time. So when we get down in the dirt, like Peter and John, miracles like Malibu's can happen. So if we look back in Acts 3, we read, again, Peter's response to the cripple. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And you know what? Each and every one of us here in this room who believes in Jesus has the power of the Holy Spirit within us. In Acts 1, we read, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That is not something to be underestimated. By choosing to follow Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit residing within us. What I have, I give you, Peter says. So we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim Jesus and to heal the sick. Yes, it takes boldness and courage. But with the Holy Spirit within us, we are granted that boldness and courage. I don't know about any of you, but I want to see people like this cripple crazily running around London praising God. And all we need to do is step out, be brave and pray. And remember that it's not in our own strength that this happens, but in that of the Holy Spirit. Um, So we're now just going to look at the next section. So uh, verses 11 to 26, if you turn back to your Bibles. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, People of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate though he had decided to let him go. You disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see Now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. 
I love this next section. We just read of the power of God being demonstrated in those first 10 verses. And in these, in these next 15 verses, we now see the truth of God proclaimed. Peter's reaction to the healing in the temple also amazes me. After seeing a cripple who has been begging for years at the gates of the temple healed, running around crazily praising God and jumping on Peter and John in gratitude and thanksgiving, as it says in verse 11, all the people were astonished. And I mean, I would be. Peter, however, as everyone's going slightly mental and asking all these questions, simply asks, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Super chilled, as if this was just a normal day at the office for him. However, he then says something significant. He says, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob The God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. Peter simply gives the glory to God. He points others away from himself and towards Jesus. And that is why we worship like we do every week. It's all down to God. It's not in our own power or strength, but in his that miracles happen. Peter then launches into one of the boldest sermons you'll probably read in the Bible, which, considering the context I spoke about earlier, is pretty remarkable. Peter states that they, i.e. those in the temple, disowned Jesus, then murdered him. He then states that Jesus rose again. He again accuses those in the temple of acting in ignorance, tells them to repent and turn to God, states that Christ will come again as the prophets have promised, and that Jesus had been sent to turn each of you from your wicked ways. I mean, that's pretty strong stuff from Peter. Um, I guess it's no surprise that at the start of the next chapter, Peter and John are seized and put into jail. (laughs) However, again, one verse stands out in Acts 4, verse 4. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So as Peter and John are carted off to jail, the number of believers continues to grow and grow and grow. So Peter's speech or sermon here to those who witnessed the earlier healing follows a number of key themes. Number one, it's all about Jesus. It's nothing to do with Peter whatsoever. It's all about Jesus. Secondly, he offers an explanation of how the man was healed. Thirdly, he explains the sufferings of Jesus. He then calls on those present to repent. And he lastly highlights the dangers of rejecting Jesus. So the challenge here is a simple one, yet one that takes a lot of courage. How are we at proclaiming the good news of Jesus, whatever the consequences? I mentioned it earlier. John the Baptist beheaded, Jesus crucified, Stephen stoned. Peter and John thrown into jail and later martyred like most of the rest of the apostles. We're so, so fortunate that here in London we don't have the threat that the apostles faced looming over us. We aren't faced with persecution like so many Christians around the world today. For us to proclaim the truth may mean being told to shut it, it may cause a bit of social rejection... It may lead to us being mercilessly teased by our non-Christian mates, which it certainly does with me. Um, But Jesus did not promise us an easy path. 
And following Jesus might also lead us down unexpected routes. In the 1950s, uh, my grandfather gave up playing international rugby for England at the age of 24 to become a missionary in Japan. And towards the end of his life, he compiled a series of reflections he had written over the previous 60 years. And there was one quote that, as I was recently reading back through it, struck me, especially in light of today's passage. He said, Christ made enemies because he told people the truth. Saying nothing is much easier and costs nothing, but the result is that people easily choose the second-rate road in life when a spur in the flank might have sparked greatness. Following Jesus isn't straightforward. But let's be people who put a spur in the flank and release people to their full God-given potential. And that's exactly what Peter and John did in this passage. And that's exactly what happened to Malibu out in South Africa. I wanted to finish with uh, another quick reflection. And it comes from my last year of university, some five years ago now. And our college Christian union at Durham decided to run a series of blogs titled Why I'm a Christian to try and explain to our non-Christian mates why it was that we went off to church on a Sunday or didn't get involved in some of the stuff that they did or did some of the other stuff that we did do. And um, the series was coordinated by a friend who a couple of months ago, along with her husband, tragically died while on holiday. And I submitted a blog for this series a few years back, but I wanted to touch on the blog that she wrote five years ago, which resurfaced in the aftermath of what happened. And I just want to read a brief bit of it to you. Last May, my granddad died. And whilst this was, of course, very sad, I'm so grateful for the time I had with him on the afternoon he died. All he wanted to talk about was what Christ had done for him and the importance of living a life in right relationship with God. Grandad was certain in the hope that he had in Jesus Christ, that his sins had been paid for and that he was soon to be with Christ in heaven. And I realised that this was how I wanted to meet death. She concluded her post, I can say with certainty, like my granddad and the Apostle Paul, that for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those concluded word, concluding words have obviously taken on an added poignancy for me over the last couple of months since what happened happened. But are each of us entering every single day living that mantra? That to live is Christ and to die is gain. Peter, John, the apostles, the early church certainly did. No wonder the church continued to grow and grow and grow. So as we finish, I think there are a few areas that would be great for us to pray through. Firstly, how do we respond when we see people in need? Do we get down in the dirt alongside them like Peter and John did with the cripple? Secondly, each one of us who believes in Jesus has the Holy Spirit within us. Are we genuinely living this out each and every day? Because the Holy Spirit residing within us is so powerful. Thirdly, we worship God because it's all down to him. 
It's not by our own strength that miracles happen or people turn to Christ. How thankful are we to God? And lastly, we should proclaim Jesus wholeheartedly. Are we living out that mantra that to live is Christ and to die is gain each and every day? Amen.